Now, if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, we have been preaching verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew, and today we come to Matthew 5, 17. Uh, It's providential that we come to this passage today because this time of year is when we especially celebrate how Christ came to earth, His Advent, Christmas. And in this passage, Jesus tells us one reason why He came to earth. In fact, there's only one command in the passage of Scripture today, and the command is, don't get the wrong idea about why Jesus came. And you'll see that in your Bible uh, if you look at the beginning of verse 17 in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 17, look, look in your Bible. Jesus commands, do not think. There's the command. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Well, and then in the rest of the passage, Jesus will teach what we should think instead about why he came. So if you want to understand the reasons Jesus came at at Christmas, you especially should listen to what he says about that. And if you read through the Gospels, you will find that Jesus Jesus actually said a lot about this. He spoke very uh, directly and explicitly and repeatedly about why he came. So I'll share a few of those things that he said to explain that he said... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to seek and save the lost. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. I came from heaven as living bread to give my flesh for the life of the world so that they may live forever. He said, I came that my sheep may have life and have it abundantly. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that the Father has given to me, and will raise them up on the last day. He said, I came not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through me. He said so much about why he came. And he also said, I came into this world for judgment, in this sense, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword to set families against each other. He said, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. See, he said so much, Jesus wants us to know in a very full way why he came and why he didn't. And in this passage in Matthew 5, Jesus adds more to this full understanding about why he came. You cannot fully understand why the Son of God entered the womb of a virgin and took on human nature without wrapping your mind around this text In Matthew, if you think that Jesus came to earth to abolish the law and the prophets in the slightest, 
then you have misunderstood the reason for Christmas and the salvation he came to bring. So what we're going to see in this passage is Jesus teaches us two important reasons why he took on flesh and came to dwell among us. And here's the first. Jesus came to fulfill all the word of God. Jesus came to fulfill all the word of God. Look at verse 17 again in your Bible, and we'll finish it this time. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, that phrase, the law and the prophets, that refers to all of the word of God that had been given before Jesus came. The law is the first five books of the Bible, which Moses wrote. The prophets refers to all the other books after that, before Christ's coming. So the law and the prophets, it's a phrase that means the whole of Scripture before Christ, all the Old Testament, before John the Baptist showed up as a prophet saying, the Messiah is here. Jesus explains in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And also in Matthew eleven three, 3, Jesus said, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So law and prophets refers to all the scripture of the Old Testament, which was all of the written word of God when Jesus said these words. Now notice in that verse, though, I read from Matthew 11, he said not just that the prophets prophesied, but that the law prophesied. So, so clearly law here doesn't just mean the commands of God. It, it means the Torah, the book of Moses that begins the Bible. There are prophecies in the law, and there are laws in the prophets. And as the way Jesus is using the terms here, and Jesus says, I came to fulfill all of it, all the word of God, all Scripture. Now, this has probably been the biggest theological point of the Gospel of Matthew up to this point. Repeatedly, in chapters 1 through 4, we've run into these words that this, this or that happened in the life of Jesus to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Again and again and again, he's fulfilling the words of the prophets, the words of Isaiah, of Micah, of Hosea, of Jeremiah. We've seen all of that in Matthew 1 through 4. But it's not just the prophecies of Scripture he came to fulfill. Remember what Jesus told John the Baptist when, when he came to the Jordan River to be baptized? In chapter 3, verse 15, he said he had come to fulfill all righteousness. So, so he had come to do all the righteous will of God, to obey in every way he had to as the Messiah to save sinners. To, to obey, as it were, in the place of the people of God where they had failed so he could be our representative righteousness before God, our substitute. But, but the way he fulfills Scripture is even bigger than that. Uh, he, he came to fulfill the promises, to fulfill the covenants God had made with all the people before. He came to fulfill the institutions God had established before Christ came, uh, like the, the sacrifices and the priesthood and the temple. The Bible says he, he came to fulfill even the history of God's dealings with his people before. He came to, to inaugurate the new and better exodus and lead God's people to the new and better 
promised land. He, he even came to fulfill the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, to be the greater Solomon who exemplified in himself and taught perfect wisdom, perfect righteous living in the complexities of a world broken by sin and suffering. All the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets, even Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There is a sense that Jesus came to fulfill even that. How so? His mission was to bring to completion God's plan for creating humanity and creating the universe. And we, we've heard this theology even at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, at the beginning of chapter 5 of Matthew, these Beatitudes Jesus declared. Well, in these Beatitudes, repeatedly, he, he is announcing the arrival of what God said in the Old Testament would come when God brought his final salvation to earth. So when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's saying, I have come to bring to completion all that God has foretold and foreshadowed and intended in, in all of the word of God. And now in the next verse, Jesus is going to give us a very good reason why we should not think that he came to abolish the law and the prophets. So look at verse 18 in your Bible now. Matthew 5, 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So can you connect those two verses? Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and prophets because, essentially, that's impossible. There is nothing in the law or prophets that will ever pass away until it comes to pass. Uh, Jesus said elsewhere, Scripture cannot be broken. John 10, 35. This is amazing. Jesus says here that the fulfillment of the words of Scripture is just as certain as the continued existence of the earth beneath your feet. And, and the skies above your head. And, and Jesus even indicates part of the purpose of the continued existence of the earth beneath your feet and the sky above your head is so God can finish fulfilling all of his word. God is preserving the world right now so he can fulfill all of his word. Uh, if you ever look down and you see that the earth is still there. Or if ever you look up and you can see that the sky is still there, then you can know, according to Jesus, that the words of God are still good. And his promises can still be trusted. And everything that he has said he will give in Christ, he will give it to the full in the end. It's all going to be accomplished. You know, uh, do you, do you ever struggle with doubt? Do you ever struggle with doubt that heaven and earth won't be there one day that you wake up? Or sometime that you finish work or finish school? You, you don't. You, you believe that these things will continue to be. Well, you know what Jesus said in Luke 16, 17? It is easier 
for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And actually one day, all of us are going to see that that actually is true. Because Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is insisting on, on the utter infallibility of the whole Bible. And the law and the prophets did too. Uh, as in Joshua 21, 45, the prophet there wrote, not one word of all of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. But I want you to notice something in this verse. Jesus affirms the same truth, but in a way that is even more forceful, even more extreme, we could say, than saying every word will prove true. He doesn't just say every word. He says every single little letter in every word will prove true. It can't pass away. He goes further than that. He says every single little mark that makes up every little letter of every word will by no means pass away unfulfilled. This is incredible when he says not an iota, not a dot here in verse 18. Okay, iota, what is that? Iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. It, it looks like our lowercase i, which is also our smallest letter. You can think through the alphabet for yourself, but take my word for it. It's the smallest letter. Now, actually, though, Jesus, Jesus is talking about the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, though. So, so iota, in this case, refers to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is yod, which is even smaller than our I in, in the Greek iota. It, it basically looks like an apostrophe, that letter. Now, th th this other phrase, he said, not a dot. Uh, other translations say the smallest stroke or not a tittle. Uh, the Greek word here is actually horn, not a horn. And the idea is every little mark that's part of writing a letter so, right, the, the little strokes of a pen that distinguish one letter from another, like the little dash that distinguishes an, an L from a T, or, or the little horn that distinguishes a lowercase a from an O. That, that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, even the smallest strokes and dots that form the letters of Scripture are all unbreakable and must be fulfilled. That is how confident Jesus was in the words of God. And so that is how confident we should be if we are His disciples in every part of Scripture. Do you remember what it means to be a disciple? It means to be a learner. It means, it means to relate to Jesus as your Lord and your teacher. It means to take his yoke upon you and to learn from him. And if you're his disciple, you need to learn from him to think about the Bible like he does, which is not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the word until all is accomplished. And learn this also from Jesus, 
that he is the one in whom all the word is fulfilled. So friend, uh, you can you can rest the full weight of your faith on every word in the Bible, not because you are able to answer every criticism of every skeptic off the top of your head, but just because you trust Jesus and you trust that He has told us the truth about the Bible. That, that it is, even in its smallest details, trustworthy, unbreakable, and summed up in Him. And Jesus would know. He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill. He came to accomplish. Now in the next verse, verse 19, Jesus narrows His point. And, and He's speaking now with a sharper focus on one aspect of the Word of God in particular. So now look at your Bible in verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to look at verse 20 also. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's the other main point for today. Jesus came to fill us with true righteousness. He came to fulfill all the word of God and he came to fill us with true righteousness. Now, in verses 17 and 18, okay, Jesus was speaking broadly about all of prior Scripture, but now he starts to speak more specifically about the commandments that God gave in Scripture. Verse 19, the commandments. And, and about the righteousness that God requires of his people. Verse 20, righteousness. So here's the focus now. The, the righteous requirements of the commandments in Scripture. In verse 19, Jesus spoke about doing and teaching God's commandments and that we should not relax them in, in the way we try and do them and in the way we teach others to keep them. Okay, who were the main teachers of the law of God at this time? The scribes and the Pharisees, the guys he mentioned in verse 20. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they seemed to care very much about the commandments of God. It seemed like they devoted their whole lives to keeping God's commandments and to teaching others to, to keep God's commandments in really in great and burdensome details. They also we find in the Gospels, the, they accused Jesus of what? Of, of abolishing the law of God, or at least of relaxing the commandments of God. Think, think about how the Pharisees were always accusing him of breaking, for example, the commandments in Scripture related to the Sabbath day. So, so because of the accusations of the scribes and the Pharisees, this is part of why Jesus says, don't think I have come to abolish 
the law and the prophets. Don't buy it. Don't believe those guys. That is not why I have come. I've come to fulfill Scripture, including God's righteous commandments. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean that all the commands of God in the Old Testament were going to continue to be requirements for God's people just the same. So think, for example, about all the commands in the Old Testament about like offering sacrifices for sin. Well, those are not going to continue when after the cross and Jesus makes the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. But I want you to, to think about this. That doesn't mean that Jesus came just to cancel and set aside and abolish those commandments. He didn't. He came to fulfill those commandments. He came to bring those commandments to completion. He came to accomplish the end that God intended for giving those commandments. He fulfilled them. And so he, he would for all the commands of God and all the words of God. And so, so Jesus answers that indictment against him, but, but then he sends one back at them. He says, in effect, these men who are charging me with abolishing the law and, and, and charging me with teaching others to, to relax the commands of God and set it aside, it's actually they who are doing that by the way that they live and by the way that they're teaching others about the commandments of God, what the righteousness that the commandments truly require is. And that's actually what the whole rest of Matthew chapter 5 is about. Jesus in the rest of Matthew 5 is going to bring up six sayings that, that are from or based on the commands of God in the law. And Jesus does this to bring up what, what the people had heard the scribes and Pharisees teach about these commands. And he does that in order to correct their teaching to show what the true righteousness was that those commandments actually were aiming at. So you can see these six sayings and see how Jesus corrects what they taught about them. Beginning in verse 21, look at 21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and then he's going to correct what the Pharisees taught about that law. Now look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, and he's going to correct what the Pharisees taught about that command. And he goes on like that four more times, and then the last one is in 43. So you can take a peek at Matthew 5, 43. Here's the last one. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and then he goes on to correct that uh, dictum of the scribes and Pharisees. So notice Jesus didn't say in those repeated kind of headings, he didn't say, you have read that it was written, but I say to you. He's not trying to contrast what he says with the prior words of Scripture. No, he says, you have heard what it was said. He's, he's trying to correct what, what people would hear the Pharisees say about these commands and how to keep them. The Pharisees and the scribes had made a mess of God's commands. They had ripped the heart out of them. That They did not understand. 
They did not have, they did not want, and they did not teach the true righteousness that the commands of God were commanding and pointing to. And Jesus corrects this potential misunderstanding. Maybe you, maybe you have had this misunderstanding at some point. Something like this. That the Pharisees were these big-time lovers of God's commandments, really devoted to trying to keep the righteousness of God's commandments. But then Jesus came and, and made it okay for people to be less than that. And actually, Jesus is saying here, that is wrong on both sides of the sentence. That's wrong about why I came, and that's wrong about what the Pharisees really were doing. A true Christian will have a greater commitment to the true intent of God's laws than any Pharisee ever did. And any legalist does now. The righteousness of a true Christian will always exceed the righteousness of a legalist. Jesus said in verse 19, right, to to emphasize this about his program, his kingdom, his salvation. He said, the one who is great in my kingdom is is the person who does and teaches even the least of God's commandments. And Christians who who relax the least of God's commandments and teach others to do likewise, well, they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Still a great privilege, but but a higher honor for those who who do and and teach, even even an intent to keep the least commandments. But, But then Jesus adds the real shocker in verse 20. He goes from talking about who's great in the kingdom of heaven to who's least in the kingdom of heaven to who will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and he says, if you are only as righteous as the scribes and Pharisees, if you only keep and do the commands of God like the Pharisees, then, then you have not been saved. You're not going to heaven. You're not in God's kingdom. See, verse 20 seems like it says, if I'm not more righteous than the Pharisees, I'm not headed to heaven. And it seems like that's what it says because that's exactly what he's saying. And and Jesus made that point in a really emphatic way in verse 20. He, He tried to make this really clear. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, you can translate that phrase, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we think, if you've got the wrong idea about the Pharisees, you think, wow, the Pharisees seem to give their lives to the laws of God. But but here's the deal. The way that they do, the way that they keep them, does not actually fulfill them. Not even in a beginning kind of way. That they do not keep the laws in a way that bring about this this true righteousness that God was calling for when he gave those laws. Okay, so that leads us to a very important question that we'll spend the rest of this sermon answering. What is this sinful righteousness? 
of the scribes and Pharisees. And, and then what, by contrast, is the righteousness that fulfills the commands God gave in Scripture? The law and the prophets. And, and how, how does any of that relate to the good news that Jesus came to save us by grace apart from our works? What is, first, what is the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which is actually no righteousness at all? Uh, Jesus didn't leave us to guess. He explains in other places in Matthew. And he explains here in the Sermon on the Mount. In other places in Matthew, he explains, whenever you find him repeat this phrase, the law and the prophets. There's only three other times in Matthew. One of them you already saw, you already heard, when Jesus said, the law and the prophets prophesied till John. That just makes it clear what this phrase means. It means all, all the Old Testament. But the other two times Jesus used this phrase in Matthew, the law and the prophets, he explains what is the true righteousness that the commandments of God in Scripture actually intended and pointed at and were supposed to contribute to. So, so here's the first of those last two. It, significantly, it comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 12. Matthew 7, 12. You've probably heard the first part of this. Jesus says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Listen to what he says next. He says, For this is the law and the prophets. Now, the other time that phrase was used in Matthew, Jesus, again, is, is telling us the real righteousness, all the commands of the law and the prophets we're aiming at. That's in Matthew 22, 35 through 40. Matthew 22, 35 through 40. Um, a lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Do you remember how Jesus answered? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You've probably heard that, but have you heard this next part? Then Jesus said, On these two commandments depend... All the law and the prophets. All scripture. So when Jesus said in verse 17, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, that includes this more narrow point of 19 and 20, that he had come to, to live out and to teach us what all the righteous commands of scripture were aiming at. All the commands in the law, all the commands in the prophets, they're all intended to bring about this way of relating to God, loving Him, loving Him with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, your whole inner person, all your thoughts, your desires, your commitments, your choices, loving God with your whole self and loving your neighbor as yourself, which on a very practical level, looks like doing to them 
what you wish others would do to you. That is the true righteousness that fulfills the law and the prophets, loving God and others from the heart. That when you are doing that, that's when the commands of God are, are brought to completion. And, and later words of Scripture teach the same thing. Romans 13 says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law because all the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. You say, well, then why do we need all those other commandments? It's because we need to be taught what it actually looks like to actually love people and do good to them. Uh, Galatians 5.14 also says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> so get this. It, it's like Jesus is saying in our passage, Matthew 5.17-20. through 20, he, He's saying, I came to fulfill the law and prophets in every way. And I came so that the law and the prophets could be fulfilled in you in this way. That, that the righteousness, that all of Scripture was commending and pointing that, could be placed in you and start to grow in you. That, that you could have a heart that truly is turned toward God in love. And you could have a heart that truly is turned toward others in righteous, holy love. And if you have that heart, you have a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness in the Pharisees. Because for all their you know, fastidious obsession with all the commandments of God, they didn't have that heart. That's, this is the law in the prophets, the righteous requirement of it. Now, to, to help you understand this even more, we, we need to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Really what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about is Jesus distinguishing the true righteousness of his people who have been brought into his kingdom with the, the fake so-called righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. What is this greater righteousness? Well, if, if love fulfills it, then we're not surprised that in the Sermon on the Mount, the continued emphasis of Jesus is that this is a righteousness that reaches down to your desires of your heart. The Pharisees reduced what righteousness is just to their behaviors, just to external actions. And then they reduced it even more by, by making loopholes for when those actions didn't need to be done. And we're going to see this in future Sundays in the rest of Matthew chapter 5. That, that the true righteousness then that fulfills God's commands, it doesn't just seek to avoid the deed of murder, but, but even sinful anger in the heart. It doesn't just seek to avoid the act of adultery or, or acts of sexual immorality, but even inappropriate desires in the heart. It doesn't just think you only need to keep your word in some cases or love some people. True righteousness turns the desires of the heart. And it also turns the motives of the heart. So in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus explains why the Pharisees and the scribes do their righteous things. They pray, they fast, 
They go to what we would call church. They give to the needy. But Jesus says their motive in doing these things is to be seen by others, to appear like a righteous person in order to be well thought of by others, in order order to receive the praise of others. By contrast, true righteousness, Jesus says, will desire to pray and fast and give in secret, to know and please God alone. And, And yet... The the righteous will not hide their righteousness to the point of compromising with the world. No, they're still willing to stand out for the sake of righteousness. And so let their, their good works be seen for what purpose? Well, the verse right before our passage explained, verse 16. They let the light of their good deeds shine so that others may see their good works and give glory to their Father in heaven, not to them. True righteousness touches the heart. What does your heart desire? Does your heart desire the glory of God? Do you desire to be righteous, not just in a way that people can see, but righteous even in what your heart wants because you know God can see it? As we move forward on the Sermon on the Mount, the second half of chapter 6, it gets at our hearts again. And he's explaining this true righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes. It is is a heart that treasures God and seeks after God instead of loving things like money, earthly possessions, and earthly provisions. Interestingly, when the Gospel of Luke tells us that that the Pharisees heard Jesus teaching that, what I just said, uh, it says they ridiculed Because they were actually, deep down, lovers of money. The Pharisees who gave all that to the poor and outwardly appeared so righteous? Yeah, but what did their heart love? And Jesus said to them after they ridiculed him for saying that, he said, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Here's another very clarifying passage to to explain this uh, sinful righteousness of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, 25, and 28, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed. That's about your desires. Inside you're full of greed and self-indulgent. You you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Is your heart set on the love of God? Now here's one other thing. The last thing I'll add to to help you understand what is this Uh, righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which which is no real righteousness at all. Their so-called righteousness was a self-righteous righteousness. The Bible says they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So so they did not humbly go to God and, and even mourn and cry out to God for mercy because they saw how they 
sinned against God, even in their desires. That they weren't really hungry to grow in righteousness because they were quite satisfied with how righteous they already were. They were self-righteous. And you know that affects the way you treat others? That, that means they justified themselves before others instead of being meek. And, and they viewed others with contempt in, instead of in mercy. Listen, being self-righteous will never lead to loving others as yourself. It, it leads to contempt for others. And if your heart is full of contempt for others, you should examine soberly before God if you have a self-righteousness problem. See, self-righteousness, it it, it leads you to to judge others as not deserving to be treated as well as as you deserve to be treated, since you believe yourself to be more righteous in comparison with them. Self-righteousness will not lead to loving others as yourself, and self-righteousness will not lead to loving God. Who is the one Jesus said will love much? The one who is forgiven much. And a self-righteous person believes he doesn't need to be forgiven very much compared to other people at least. And so they will love little. Or perhaps more pointedly, they will love something, but they will not love the God of grace who forgives sinners. They will love the praise of men when others notice how they appear righteous more so than others. And I want you to, I, I want you to know there, there is a religious version of self-righteousness and there is a non-religious version of self-righteousness that treats others with contempt and, and looks down on others and feels very self-satisfied with how good they are compared to other people and how good their views are compared to other people. So even if, you are, if you're like, I'm not a religious person, uh, that doesn't mean that you're not full of self-righteousness. So, so if, 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 that, if that can't lead to a true righteousness that fulfills the Scripture, okay, what, if that can't lead to, to a love of God in the heart, what can? What can? Well, well, it's the opposite. The opposite of self-righteousness, which Jesus didn't leave us to come up with what that looked like. He explained it in the prior part of the Sermon on the Mount. The, the beginning of chapter 5, the Beatitudes. It, Jesus told us about the heart that has received the gift of heaven. What happens in their heart? The first line of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 3, it says, first of all, they are poor in spirit. They, they recognize their desperate need for mercy from God because, because of their sin. And so they mourn over sin and they're hungry to be filled with true righteousness in the heart. They're hungry to be filled with righteousness even at the level of their unseen desires and their unseen motives and their unseen true treasures. Now, this connection to the Beatitudes is very important for another reason. It helps us to understand how this verse meshes with the gospel of grace. Verse 3 connects with verse 20 because verse 20 said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Well, if you're reading on the Sermon on the Mount, you should remember the very first line of it, verse 3, talked about the kingdom of heaven and who will enter it. And who, in fact, already has. They have it. Jesus said in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so you should keep that in mind when you come to verse 20, and then you'll know that Jesus is not teaching that the people who get to go to heaven are people who somehow make themselves more righteous than the Pharisees. No. Verse 3 teaches you how a person can end up more righteous than a Pharisee. Here's how. By coming to God poor in spirit. At admitting you have nothing good to offer Him or bring to Him because of your sin. Admitting to Him, I have no righteousness. That I'm a sinner from the heart. It's not that I'm a good person in my heart, but I've just done a few bad things. No, I've done bad things because I have a bad heart. God, I am so needy of your mercy. I don't love you as I ought. I don't love others as I ought in the heart, and I can't unless you change me. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace to make me brand new. I need your grace to to turn my heart toward righteous love. And Jesus came to preach good news that he had come to bless us in just those ways. He, He came to save us. He came to bless us, to give us a righteousness that will exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees by grace. And you know what? The moment you come to him poor in spirit, asking for grace, you have already taken a step of righteousness that goes beyond the Pharisees. Jesus came so that we would not be condemned for our unrighteousness, so we'd be forgiven for our sins, forgiven for our lack of love, and he came so that, Scripture says, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What's the righteous requirement of the law? That we would love God and others. So he came so, so that the love of God would be planted in our heart and start to grow as we walk trusting in what he did for us. Now, how would Jesus actually accomplish this? Scripture says he accomplished it by offering himself up in death for our sins. I want you to think about this. Jesus explained what his death was going to accomplish the night before he was killed. He shared a symbolic supper with his disciples, and he said that the cup represented his blood spilled in death, and he said that this blood of my sacrifice will bring into effect a covenant, the new covenant. Well, bringing the new covenant into effect is one way that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Because you know the law and the prophets prophesied that God was going to make a new covenant. And the law and the prophets said what was going to be part of the new covenant. What was going to be part of the new covenant? What what was Jesus about to accomplish? God would forgive our sins and remember them no more. And it says in the new covenant that God would give us a new heart. A new heart that had something written on it. You know what would be written on our hearts? His law. His law. He would give us a new heart with his law written on it. Do you understand that imagery? It means he would change your desires. He wasn't just going to give us his law on a tablet of stone. 
or on a piece of paper so we would know what we should do if we want to live a righteous life. He would write his law on our hearts so that we would want to live a righteous life for his glory because we would love him. The death of Jesus cleansed us from our sins, washed us clean, made us a consecrated vessel able to receive his spirit who inscribes the laws of God on our hearts and so gives us a heart that truly does want to keep his commandments for the motive of his glory, for the motive of loving him. So do you see then how when you put your faith in Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, dying for our sins and rising from the dead and sending the spirit to those who trust him, those who trust Jesus have, they will have a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees because it will be a righteousness that touches their heart, their desires, their loves because of what he has done. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets for us. And he came so that the law and the prophets could be fulfilled in us, blessing us with a righteousness of heart, a love of God that God's commands were aiming at all along. So, so friend, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus confessing your sin, asking for his mercy, trusting in his work, his death on your behalf, and he will forgive you. He will give you his spirit, and that will make you more righteous than a Pharisee. Maybe not in ways that others can see, but in a way that God can see, because he will see your heart, and he will see how his spirit has written his law on your heart, and he will see this person is trying to keep my commandments because they love me, because I have put that love for me there. This is a guarantee by his grace. Jesus would not have said what he did in verse 20 unless it was a guarantee that his salvation that he accomplished would bring in you a righteousness that was greater than those heartless religious Pharisees. Don't try and change your own heart. Don't try and change your own loves. Don't try and change your own desires. Don't try and change your own treasures. Jesus died for you to give you a new heart. Go to him, receive it. And then walk continuing to trust in what he did for you on the cross. And these new desires, he will grow. He will fan into flame. And he will continue to give you mercy every time you fail. What a great salvation we have. Let's pray. God, thank you for coming, to, coming in the person of your son to fulfill the law and the prophets. To give us a new heart that loves your law to give us forgiveness for our failings to keep your law. What, what a full salvation you give us, perfect in every way, to meet every need that we have. We praise you, God of grace. Thank you for this good news that we've just heard about this other reason that Jesus came to the earth. Uh, we praise you for your wisdom and might and your mercy on us. And in Jesus' name we do. Amen.